Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and this is the Cafe Scole podcast. Welcome to another podcast episode in which we seek to bring restful, contemplative learning back to our schools, homeschools, and lives. That is to say, to bring Scole back to school. This is the third podcast of Cafe Scole, dedicated to Scole in the ecclesial tradition. In a previous podcast, we looked at Scole in the classical Greek tradition, and we considered the ideas of Homer, Plato, and Aristotle. And we saw that skole is a rich word in the Greek tradition, uh, a word that can't be well rendered by a single English word like leisure. Now, leisure is a good word, but it has connotations of, um, say, an American vacation of relaxation with uh, out much thought and contemplation. But skole is a word that is rich with this idea of contemplation and considering the things that are true, good, and beautiful. So it's not really, um, it's not, it's not, it's, leisure doesn't quite get at skole. So we've defined skole as something like undistracted time to study the things that are most worthwhile, usually with your good friends, usually in a lovely place, usually with good food and drink. That's skole. And to the Greeks, it was the highest human activity. Well, how did, how did Christians view this? How did, the, how did the church respond to this inherited idea of skole that we find in, say, Plato and Aristotle? Well, they responded fairly positively. Now, skole is going to be uh, in some ways transformed by the gospel of Christ, but it's, it's recognized by the early church as pretty much on the mark, as something that is deeply a part of, of the human image being made in the image of God, that we were made to rest and contemplate and enjoy the true, the good, and the beautiful. And of course, if the truth and the good and the beautiful are, are sourced in the Trinity, then to, that means that to encounter anything that is true is already to be in contact with he who is the author of all truth, or with truth itself, or should we say, himself. Well, we could start in a number of places in the, in the ancient church to, to see how the church responded to Scole, but I think the best place to start is with Augustine, the towering theologian of late antiquity and the bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 A.D., he wrote a number of famous books, lots of books, a shelf of books. He wrote The Confessions, which is a remarkable book that if you haven't read, you certainly should read, put it on your list. It's part autobiography, it's part theology, it's part psychology. It's still widely read by all kinds of people. He also wrote The City of God, which is his response to the barbarian invasions of Rome. 
How could that have happened? And he describes the way in which the church lives and dwells in society before Christ returns and interacts with uh, those outside of the church, the city of man, the city of God. And, of course, he makes all kinds of interesting observations throughout that, that book, The City of God. Augustine was also called by some the theologian of rest. You might have heard this famous quotation from the beginning of the Confessions when he says, Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. So, Augustine is well aware of Plato and Aristotle's view of scholae, this highest human activity of contemplation or theoria in the Greek. He, he believes that humanity, Augustine does, finds its delight when it restfully contemplates divine truth. He says something along the lines of this, that the soul can perceive truth, but that truth ultimately is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Augustine also taught a double love, a love for God and a love for neighbor, right out of Matthew 22, the the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He, He called that the double love. In his book, The Confessions in Book 19, he emphasizes an active life, which in Latin is vita activa, and a contemplative life, the vita contemplativa. And we'll see that these two ways of thinking about human activity or life become quite well known throughout the history of the church, beginning with Augustine and and moving through Gregory and some others, as we'll see the active life and the contemplative life. And Augustine thinks that, of course, we need to live an active life of love. Uh, So, as much as we might want to elevate Scolae as this great human activity, it should not be at the expense of being active in the world because of the great commandment that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Augustine says that benevolent love compels us to act on behalf of our neighbors and out of love for our neighbors. So we can't spend all of our time simply in contemplation. We must love our neighbor. And so there's a double love that requires the vita activa, but there's also the love of God that requires the vita contemplativa, the contemplative life. He and many others will cite Luke 10 as an example of this. Uh, this is the story of Mary, Mary and Martha um, and their visit with Jesus Christ. You know the story. But just to, just to summarize it, Jesus is visiting with these two sisters, and Martha is very busy in the kitchen, apparently, either cleaning up or preparing for a meal. And Mary is spending her time, however, sitting with Jesus in conversation. And Martha, observing this, gets annoyed and irritated and confronts not Mary, her sister, but confronts Jesus and says, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are anxious or busy about many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. This famous passage is an illustration to Augustine of both the active and the contemplative life. 
There is nothing wrong with Martha preparing a meal for a friend. And we must do this out of love for for our neighbors and our families. This is good. But there is also a time in which we should let the dishes go and sit with Jesus. This is the vita contemplativa, the contemplative life. And it also is good, and the love of God compels us to it, a life of prayer, contemplation. And so, uh, to Augustine, we in our own lives at times should be Martha and at times should be Mary. Now, of course, the challenge for so many of us is that we know how to be Martha, but we have forgotten how to be Mary. And the active life swallows the contemplative life. So, Augustine suggests that the contemplative life, the life of Mary, is superior, as the the story uh, seems to indicate when Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better part. But he also makes it clear that both the active and contemplative life are needed in a kind of harmony. Well, we'll leave Augustine for the moment and go to St. Gregory the Great. Uh, Gregory, one of the popes of Rome, uh, lived from 540 to 604 AD. He was born in Rome, and he later became pope. He was called Gregory the Great because of some of the remarkable contributions he's made to church life and theology. He believed also that both the active and the contemplative life are needed for a harmonious life. Learning in a school or a homeschool, don't you think, should be both active at times and contemplative. So, harmony is a pretty important idea when it comes to considering both the active and contemplative life. Gregory wrote in a book called the Moralia that Christ's life was an example of both the vita activa and the vita contemplativa. Jesus, for example, performs active miracles in the day, very busy with people in towns and villages in the day, sometimes healing and preaching, but at night was contemplative with much prayer. Uh, Gregory and Augustine also cite, by the way, Rachel and Leah from the Genesis narrative as examples of the contemplative and active life. Rachel symbolizing the contemplative life and Leah the active life. Well, moving forward in time, let's, well, actually, in this case, backwards just a moment to a Greek church father, Basil of Caesarea. Basil lived from 330 to 379 AD and was an Eastern Orthodox saint and a, or a Greek church father. Basil replaced the ideal of skole in the Christian tradition with prayer. Basil says that for Christians, prayer becomes our skole. It is the embodiment of our contemplative life. Prayer to God becomes the highest form of theoria or contemplatatio, contemplation. Isn't that an interesting note? Uh, this is one way that, according to Basil, that the Christian gospel transforms and elevates this idea of contemplation or scole. Well, going way ahead to Thomas Aquinas to the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas lived from 1225 to 1274. 
He was a great theologian and writer of the 13th century. In his great work and his huge work, the Summa Theologica, in question 182, Aquinas wrote that a man might be called away to the active life for a time, but he must not forsake the contemplative life. Again, Aquinas is in line with Augustine and Gregory the Great, saying there needs to be a harmony of both the contemplative and the active lives. But we ought not ever to forsake the better part, which is the contemplative life. So just to pause for a moment, this is a challenge for us, is it not? Where is your contemplative life? Where is the balance or harmony between the active and the contemplative in your own life? Uh, if Pieper is right, who wrote Leisure, the Basis of Culture, or Scolé, the, the Basis of Culture, the world of total work threatens us and often swallows up our contemplative life. For Aquinas, the contemplative life was uh, the better because, it, because the true, good, and beautiful things that we contemplate become our permanent possession while the act of life is going to pass away. This, this is in line with the medieval maxim that we become what we behold. The more we contemplate the things that are true, good, and beautiful, the more those things become an integral part of who we are. They form us. Our souls become harmonized with the true, the good, and the beautiful. But the active things we do, those things will come and go. That's Aquinas. Now, it's worth just making a comment at this point about the very large institution and movement of the Middle Ages, which is monasticism. Monasticism, uh, brothers and sisters living in community with schools in order to serve, in order to pray and worship, in order to serve the surrounding towns and villages. The monastic education of Europe was extensive and deep. In fact, it's, it's, you would be hard-pressed to name a great medieval mind who was a writer and teacher that was not educated in a monastery. Uh, just to take Benedictine monasticism, you know, Benedictine who started about 12 monasteries by, say, 500 AD, uh, Benedict had a huge influence on Europe. In fact, he's considered the patron saint of all of Europe. How many Benedictine monasteries do you think there were by, say, 1,400 throughout Europe and even outside of Europe? Well, the estimates range from twenty to 37,000. So there were thousands of monasteries throughout Europe, and these are places where there was spiritual and leisurely learning. The Benedictine motto was ora et labora, as well as pax. Ora means pray, labora means work, and pax means peace. So there was ample opportunity in monastic settings for scolae. Men and women left active society to pursue lives of contemplative leisure, which included both contemplation and activity, because the monks would work ora et labora. Basically, ora represents the contemplative life, and Labora represents the active life. How can we set aside time in our lives for contemplation and spiritual leisure? How could we inject a little 
monasticism into our schools and homeschools? What if we regarded each homeschool as a little monastery where there was a place for the contemplative? How can we set aside this time? Well, let me cite for you just three or four kind of elements of the monastic tradition that will show you the practical ways in which scole or contemplation was incorporated into monastic life. First of all, there was the Lectio Divina, the divine reading of Scripture, the slow reading and rereading of Scripture to meditate on its meaning and its truth. There were four steps to this Lectio Divina. Sometimes it was called the uh, Sacra Pagina as well, the sacred page. There was, first of all, Lectio, just reading the scripture, but the scripture would often be read and reread, often with different prompts or questions in mind, read slowly, read out loud. The second stage in Lectio Divina was Meditatio. This was a time when you would think through the various other teachings of scripture and other aspects of life and existence that might relate to this passage that you were reading. This was a kind of active thinking uh, it was kind of a, a synthesizing way of using one's mind to relate scripture to other scripture and other reading. And then the third part was called contemplatio or contemplation. And this was more of a receptive state of mind when you would listen and open yourself up to what God might say to you through this passage. And when do we ever do that? When do we ever be still and listen to hear God's voice in Scripture speaking to us? And the fourth stage was called oratio, in which we would respond in prayer to what had been read, thought about, and contemplated. Um, What a lovely way to approach Scripture the Lectio Divina. And this approach could be used with other passages as well, outside of Scripture, other books. The slow, close, contemplative reading of Scripture and other great books. The monastic tradition also contained uh, this idea of commonplacing um, or the writing in and curating of a florilegium, a florilegium, is a book of flowers. And this is a commonplace book that monks would keep, uh, a treasured notebook in which the monk would record beautiful things, flowers as it were, that he would encounter in his reading and in sermons and in conversation with others. Keep in mind, this was a time in which there were no printing presses and books were not cheap and readily available and ubiquitous. So, if someone visited your monastery and they had a copy, say, of the Confessions, you might want to borrow it for a night and record some passages into your florilegium from Augustine. Remember, there was no copyright law back then, so that was perfectly acceptable. And then the passages recorded in a florilegium would slowly be memorized until these passages from Scripture and other edifying literature would become memorized and a part of the monk's soul. Wouldn't that be a practice worth recovering today in some form? And then the monks would pray the hours. Praying the hours involved 
praying seven to eight times a day, weaving prayer into the daily schedule of life, including getting up at midnight and then once again before you would rise. Now, some of these midnight services praying would be would be brief, say twenty minutes. It wasn't you wouldn't get up for for ninety minutes. Some of the other uh, hours of prayer would be longer. Now, praying the hours didn't mean you prayed for hours and hours and hours. It meant that on particular hours, you would pray for a period of time. Now, all added up, it might be three hours or so of of prayer a day throughout a 24-hour period. This is a kind of praying without ceasing. What would it look like if we even prayed the hours in the morning, noon, and evening, just three times a day? What if our families could rise or our schools or homeschools could gather for even five minutes of prayer each morning? And what if we could pause at noon for just five minutes of prayer? And what if we could close our days with just five minutes of prayer? Wouldn't that make a difference? Because most of us don't even approach that. I've already mentioned the maxim of ora et labora, this way of harmonizing the active and contemplative life that was built right into the monastic life. Pray and work. We could mention as well that the architecture of these monasteries was also suited to both the contemplative and the active life. If you've ever been in a monastery, you'll notice that it's built around a garden. It's built around a cloister or a a square garden with breezeways surrounding that. And the, the garden itself lends itself to being contemplated, does it not? And the breezeway that surrounds the garden, like a kind of portico, is a lovely way of being able to walk and talk, sitting on these short benches, that uh, the wall, the short walls that uh, um, also border the garden, a place to sit and talk and contemplate, a great place for peripatetic teaching to occur. That means teaching while you walk around. And indeed, that's what would often happen. Um, teachers could walk the breezeways with their students, sit down at times on the short wall, go into the garden, either communally or individually. So this is the way, in my opinion, to build a school. Build it around a cloister. Build it around a garden. And then in the monastic cells themselves, there was often uh, a, um, paintings of something worth contemplating, something true, good, and beautiful. Now, these cells were sparse, but they were minimalistic and yet beautiful. Uh, the cells themselves, the architecture of the monastic cells, lent themselves to rest and study. And then the monastic books, the hymn books, the the illuminated texts that were used in worship were very, very beautiful, as I'm sure you've seen examples of. So the architecture, the, the books, the paintings, the frescoes, the garden, the breezeway, even the dining hall, the refectory, all was designed in such a way as to support and encourage a harmonious blend of both the contemplative and active lives. Well, to sum up, and finish our very brief survey of Scolae in the ecclesial tradition, we should mention the Reformation and the Puritans. The Reformation was a very energetic time of recovery and return. Uh, The Reformers, as I'm sure you know, wanted to return to what they regarded as the purity of Christian teaching. They had thought that there had been 
some accretion and corruption over the last centuries that needed to be purified, reformed. So, in this energetic time, uh, it was a time of more activity than contemplation. Leaders like Martin Luther were skeptical of the monasteries because at the time he had seen some corruption and he thought that, uh, you know, there could be good examples of men living in communion for prayer and service. He didn't like the vow of celibacy, but he did think there could be a kind of monasticism where people came together for, for service and prayer and worship and in community. But he was skeptical of some of the corruption that he saw. Now, I would just mention parenthetically that there, in any, any long institution, there's going to be times of decline and even corruption is not to be unexpected. And throughout the history of monasticism, there were times like this prior to the Reformation, but the monasteries were able to reform themselves. The Cluniac reforms and others are some, something you could study if you wanted to. But at any rate, um, this was a time of energy, not so much contemplation. So I'm, of course, generalizing here. I don't want to suggest to our Protestant friends that there were There was no emphasis at all in prayer and contemplation during the Reformation. That wouldn't be true. But as a general rule, it was a time of active love uh, rather than contemplative love. The Puritans, since um, I'm speaking here from North America, they were an extension of the Reformation. And so they were very active. They created colonies and established churches and communities along the eastern coast, the northeastern coast of of North America here in the United States. Despite the Puritans having a kind of dour reputation, they they really did enjoy themselves through recreation, drinks, celebration, a kind of partying. Um, For some reason, uh, we developed this idea that the Puritans did not like anything that was pleasurable. That's just not true. And there have been books that have been written to address this. Uh, Worldly Saints, written by Leland Riken, Meet Meet the Puritans as They Really Are, is the subtitle. Or a more recent book by, say, Joel Beek, Meet the Puritans, um, will will correct this misunderstanding. Puritans saw a person's work ethic as a manifestation of his or her zeal for God. So they did emphasize the active life. But let me just cite a counterexample, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, we might consider to be a part of the Puritan tradition, living in the early 1700s. But Jonathan Edwards spent 13 hours a day in his study. Um, he was a great scholar. He certainly was a Puritan who pursued the vita contemplativa. So we want to be careful not to generalize too much about any particular historical period. And then in closing, I would just cite Joseph Pieper once more. He's very important to this idea of Scolé and our understanding of Scolé and our recovery of Scolé. His seminal book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, is a book that you ought to read if you're interested in Scolé at all. Now, he's a German philosopher, uh, so this book is a translation from the German It can be a little challenging at times, but read it slowly. It's like drinking honey. You only need to read the first 80 pages of this small book. Pieper lived from 1904 to 1997. He was a German Catholic philosopher, and he was a a Thomist, uh, an Aquinas scholar. He wrote Leisure, 
the basis of culture, in which he said that Scolé can renew culture by what he called a total immersion in the real, or the true, the good, and the beautiful. And he said there were two conditions for us being able to be immersed in the real and to perceive the true and the good and the beautiful. Number one, an attitude of receptive openness and attentive silence. And he's riffing off of Thomas Aquinas here. A receptive openness and attentive silence. The second is the ability to celebrate a feast, to be able to see the world as good, though broken, though fallen, as essentially good and something that we would affirm and enjoy and therefore to respond with celebration and a kind of joy. He says these two things are the necessary conditions for being able to deeply and truly perceive the real, true reality, which is true, good, and beautiful. It's in this same book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, that he, again, following Aquinas, reminds us that the medievals had two ideas or two ways of understanding the mind, the ratio and the intellectus. The ratio, the Latin word, which means reason, We get rationality from this word. Ratio is that part of our minds that is able to categorize, uh, to classify, to reason, and to logically analyze. This is a very good part of our minds, the ratio. It's, It's the scientific part of thinking, the logical way that we come to know things. But he said, in addition to the ratio, the medievals understood that we also had a part of our mind that was called the intellectus. And the intellectus is that part of us that perceives things by a kind of poetic experience of the real. And it's that that part of us that comes to know something without work by being open and perceiving things directly, intellectually. It's a kind of intuitive understanding and engagement with the real. So, if the grasping hand that's trying to classify and organize and categorize is a good metaphor for the ratio, the the grasping hand, the open hand is a good metaphor for the intellectus that comes to know things receptively, receiving them as a gift without labor. Pieper says this, both the ratio and the electus, are necessary for us to have the harmonized, beautiful, good, true life. Well, we'll let that stand as a brief summary of a large, large area to cover, which is scolé in the ecclesial tradition. So much more we could look at. But I hope that will, that will prompt you and that you will read some books like Augustine's Confessions and read Basil on Scolé, read his letters on literature to young Greek men, read Joseph Pieper, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Well, thank you for joining me for this podcast. Next week, we will consider Scolé 
and Scripture. We'll do a survey of the Old and New Testament and see what kind of insights the Scriptures give us regarding this tradition of Scholae. I look forward to being with you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.